I'm going to put the mic back on and pray all over again as I begin this sermon. Lord, uh, be with us as we gather around your word. Thank you for it. As we come under the convicting power of your son, who is both God and prophet, may we hear what you have to say, grow in our understanding, and appreciate your love for us and what we need to do in order to be in a right relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good afternoon once again. If you are new to us, we have been, as is our custom at the Christ the King, in a book of the Bible for a few years. Uh, I, I first started coming to Christ the King when Keith Ganser was taking us through the books of First and Second Samuel. And then he took us through Hebrews, and he began uh, more than a year and a half ago in the Gospel of Matthew, and it was um, a delight for me to pick up and to carry on. And we have been going through Matthew and now find ourselves at the end of chapter 23. I had always had this secret desire to preach through Matthew and couldn't really imagine how that would ever be since my normal full-time job is not that of a pastor, but that of a professor of the other Testament, the Old Testament. But lo and behold, it's come to me. And it's my privilege to uh, have shared Matthew's gospel with you over this past many weeks. We come today to the last part of chapter 23. And let me just provide a bit of context as I often do. Matthew is a very Jewish gospel and it's not surprising that in Matthew there are five speeches, five long books or speeches, which parallel the five books of Moses. And chapter 23 begins with the last speech of Jesus. And in it, he is condemning the religious leaders of the past for their hypocrisy. And he is predicting the destruction of the temple. And in the passage that we're looking at today, he intimates his own departure from the temple, which will happen in 24-2. He's saying that as the glory of God departed from the temple in the days of Solomon's temple, so too. Jesus, here, now, as God incarnate, is literally going to walk off of the Temple Mount and leave the Temple, and it will soon be destroyed. So we're at a tough time and a tough part of our Gospel, and it's my prayer today that you might see the Gospel, even in this passage, which uh, has much that is hard to hear and, in some ways, difficult to understand. Um, as I just proceed, I want to remind you that um, there is a translation that I will be using, which isn't all that different than the translation that Ling Zi had. And for any of you for whom your eyesight is not getting any better, it's in large print. Uh, I thought of Robin Guinness as I was choosing the large font, but some of the rest of us might fit into that category. And then on page five of uh, the notes, there is an outline of uh, the sermon. At the beginning of the hour, just before he got up to read, Ling Zi wondered if he should read verses 33, because it wasn't in the lection of the passage. And I said, yes, by all means, read verse 33, because in fact, I'm going to back up and read from uh, a little bit earlier. I want to pick up on the seventh woe in 29. Jesus, last week we saw, gave seven woes, 
seven watches, watch outs to the scribes and the Pharisees. And the seventh one is in many ways climactic, and he'll talk about the shedding of the blood of prophets, which is going to be a theme in our passage today. And it will help us bring together our thoughts, I trust. He says in verse 29, woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jesus responds to this claim, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. That's going to become important in a minute. And then we come to the text in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Harsh words. Snakes, brood of vipers, how will you flee from the judgment of hell? Seven woes against the religious leaders. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives a genealogy that goes from Abraham, the forefather of the Hebrew people, the Jews, through to David. Fourteen generations. And Lingzi, no, not Lingzi, uh, him and others who are math whizzes. It's going to be a little quiz here in a minute, so you want to make sure you're listening, okay? So 14 generations from Adam to David. 14 generations from David to the exile. 14 generations from the exile to the dawning of Jesus' time. So here's the question. Accountants, mathematicians, and others. Three times 14 is how many times seven six right six sevens and guess who is born on the seventh of the sevens which represent the perfection of perfections jesus so now jesus backs up the calendar and goes back to the beginning of jewish history and he recounts seven woes upon the religious leaders of his day and towards the end of it, he says, go ahead and fill up the measure of your forefathers. He's saying, in effect, that with each generation of Hebrew people and leaders, more sin has come and more sin has come until now you're at the max. And here's the proof that you're at the max. And it begins in verse 34. After he says, how are you going to escape hell? He says in verse 34, accordingly, look. I myself am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and you will crucify, and some of whom you will whip in your synagogues, and you will pursue from one city to another, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood that is spilled on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I assuredly say to you, all these things will befall this generation. Jesus is looking towards the destruction of the temple, which he prophesied very accurately. It was about 45 years later that the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. 
Jesus is here predicting it, and people in Matthew's day, who were the first readers of this gospel, probably witnessed that very thing. So this is a prophecy of Jesus, which really, in effect, seals the doom of the religious leaders of the day and of the Israelites. Little side note, if you're finding this hard on the Hebrew people, it is. But in Jewish literature of the time, outside of the New Testament, when the, when the temple was destroyed, the Jews had exactly the same explanation. Do you know why this happened? We sinned. Generation after generation of our forefathers sinned. So there's agreement on that between Jews and Christians. The only difference between Jews and Christians in this respect is the role that Jesus had to play in sort of being the, uh, the final spokesperson of the destruction of the temple. In verse 35, it sounds a little bit unfair because Jesus is saying, upon you may come all the righteous blood that is spilled on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, all the way back in the book of Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, all the way in the book of Second Chronicles, which in the Hebrew Bible was the last book of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying the guilt of all of these people is about to come crashing down upon you. And I tell you, all these things will befall this generation. As I was thinking about how to kind of um, try to get a, um, our minds around the idea of cumulative guilt, I couldn't help but think of a, a game that we sometimes play at the cottage when we have our family gatherings up there. And the game is called Catchphrase. It's a game by Hasbro where you break up into two teams and you most often kind of sit around in a circle. And team one, uh, a member of team one is beside a member of team two, beside a member of team one, so that it alternates. And you have this gizmo, and you push a button, and it comes up with a phrase. And there's a timer. And what you have to do is you have to tell your team members without using the words in the phrase what the phrase, or you have to get them to guess what the phrase is. So if it were shoehorn, you'd say uh, something like, um, a thing with a long handle that you apply to the back of your heel when you're adorning footwear. You're not allowed to say shoe, you're not allowed to say horn, you're not allowed to say anything that rhymes with shoe or rhymes with horn. And there's kind of tension because you know that if the bell goes off when you are holding it, your team loses a point. So the idea is push the button, churn out the phrase, and then as soon as your team has guessed it, then you push the stop button and pass it on to the next person. They push the button for their phrase, and at some point, the buzzer goes off, and when the buzzer goes off, everybody on team one or team two, depending on which team the buzzer went off on, uh, gets a point against them. Well, I think what Matthew's describing here, what Jesus is describing here in verse 35, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar is a little bit like that. Now hold for a minute the analogy of catchphrase and then this verse 35. We've got two things that we've sort of half explained here. Let me finish the catchphrase uh, analogy to line it up with, in, with um, the blood of Abel and Zechariah. Imagine that in catchphrase, there aren't two teams but only one. Everybody's on the same team. And it's just a matter then of who is holding the game piece when the buzzer goes off. And when the buzzer goes off, you're implicated 
But because everybody else has been playing the game as well, they too are implicated. So what Jesus is saying in this passage about the implication of Abel's blood and Zachariah's blood is that time has been mounting. And for generation after generation, there's been sin after sin after sin. Not catchphrase deciphered after catchphrase deciphered after catchphrase deciphered. But one person has sinned and added to the tally. Another person has sinned and added to the tally. Another religious leader has sinned and added to the tally. And Jesus is now saying, guys, the game is over. When the temple is destroyed, you all lose. And the curtain comes down on you, which it did. So Jesus here is predicting an epicenter, uh, a cycle in time where the temple is going to be destroyed. So that's the analogy. There's our oldest son again. Hi, hi. Um, what, what Jesus, what Jesus is, is saying here is uh, something that takes um, a little bit of filling out of the analogy with the, with the catchphrase. Um, and it has to do with this idea of moral ecology. So we're going to go from the catchphrase to moral ecology. In the days of Jesus, the mindset was not so much scientific as it was practical and moral. And they thought in terms of moral ecology and moral pollution. So you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, when uh, Cain murdered Abel, Abel was innocent and his blood was shed. And when his blood was shed on the ground, it resulted in pollution. And so that was the first instance where in God's created world, a perfect world, innocent blood was shed. And from that point on, the world stank. Abram's or Abel's blood was crawling out from the earth, calling out that there had been an injustice. And that became paradigmatic for the Jewish people. It became paradigmatic in the book of Genesis and is the reason why there was a flood. The flood came as a washing of the world to uh, resolve this pollution. It's like dirty diaper, clean diaper. The flood was the washing of the dirty diaper of the world's pollution through the sin and the blood of Abel. And then after the waters from the flood receded, there was a recreation, kind of a rebooting of the computer. The slate was clean again, and there was a new life that began from that. Uh, so that there's a pattern that's developed, and the pattern is uh, dirty mess, and it's actually on your outline here. Might be a good time to refer you to the outline on page one. the lesson on moral ecology. The pattern is, and uh, look on page five, just nervous it's getting a little bit too many loose ends here and you're gonna lose it, so hang in. There is a zone of earth that has been stained by the blood of Abel. The punishment that comes is the flood, which is a washing. And then after the flood, uh, the earth is renewed again. 
So that event way back in the book of Genesis ended up being kind of a, a cycle, uh, a, a circular motion in time that we're to watch for to happen again. And so it did with the blood of Zechariah, this time in the book of Second Chronicles. An innocent fellow, a priest by the name of Zechariah, according to Second Chronicles 24, was in the temple. And his innocent blood was shed. Another zone in God's world has been defiled and polluted. This time, it's not the domain of God, which is the earth, and our domain, which is the earth. It's God's house, the temple. And it has been defiled by the blood of Zechariah. And that pollution was punished through the washing of the exile. The exile is when the Jewish people had their temple destroyed and they were taken away to Babylon. And that time of exile was a time of the changing of the diapers, as it were, a time of washing and a time of uh, purging. And then when the Israelites came back from exile and returned to Israel, uh, they built a new temple and there was a new start. So what Jesus is alluding to in verse 35 is a pattern. And this is important, and I'm taking the time to explain it, because for the next three or four chapters, this is going to set up the passion narrative. It's going to set up the way in which Jesus dies, according to Matthew. Jesus is going to be the last figure whose innocent blood is spilled. That's coming in the passion narrative. We're going to see this over the next four chapters where Jesus is another innocent figure whose blood is shed. And with the shedding of that blood, there is, as we've come to learn from the flood and from the destruction of the first temple, a period of exile, a period of going away. And here I think Jesus is thinking not only of the destruction of the temple, which would happen in 70 AD, but he's thinking of the destruction of his own body, which is the temple. And so with his own death, Israel again climactically goes into exile. And then, friends, here's where the good news comes. God raised Jesus from the dead to fill this paradigm. It's once again a rebooting of creation. After the flood washed away, new world. After the destruction of the temple and the exile uh, washed away, people brought back new world. So this is how Matthew understands the death of Jesus in Matthew. Think a little bit later about, um, about um, Pilate, or about, I'm sorry, about uh, Judas. Judas is aware that he has shed innocent blood, and he confesses that to the Jewish leaders. And they say, well, we can't take your money back because it is blood money. And so in later on in Matthew, there's reference to blood money. And then if you look on page uh, nine of your, um, of your, yeah, of your handout. We see that Pilate in chapter 27, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered. And this we ought now to understand as a loaded term. His blood be upon us and on our children. The measure of the guilt of the Gentiles has now reached the brim. And Pilate washes his hands, he releases Barabbas, and allows 
the Jews and the Romans to go ahead and to crucify Jesus. The third man's innocent blood has been shed. And that is a turning point in world history. It's a turning point when our sins are washed away through the exile of Jesus's death. And with his resurrection, there comes a rebirth and there comes a renewal of the world. Now, this all sounds a little bit theological, and it is, but I think it has practical implications when we think about the kind of world in which we live. For the past 15 months or so, longer now, I guess, February, March, April, May, 15 months, we have seen the unleashing of violence in a part of the world that is close to us in many ways, those of us who are of European descent, and we just see carnage where people's blood is being spilled just almost at random for no apparent good reason. From the very beginning of time, from the first human being that, whose innocent blood was ever shed, God is crying out, moral pollution. My world is in ruins. This is not how it's supposed to be. And as time goes on, this builds and builds and builds until Christ is going to come again and hold us to account. And we will look back to the time of Jesus's atoning death. And the question is, did we take opportunity of the washing that came with the blood of Jesus? And have we received the invitation to new life that comes through him? Or are we part of the old paradigm? Because if we're part of the old paradigm, then we join forces with those of whom Jesus said, I assuredly say, you, say to you, all these things will befall this generation. So here Jesus the prophet is giving us a lesson on moral ecology and pollution. Not air pollution, a more important kind of pollution, moral pollution. And God has his fill of it. And when time is up, the buzzer goes, and someone is sent into exile. And in Jesus' case, that was him on our behalf. And the resurrection that comes is that final stage of living with clean diapers, knowing that Jesus has taken care of it. And so it's a turning point for Jesus and the Jews. And Jesus is drawing the curtain on the Jewish leaders, saying, guys, the curtain is being drawn. And then we come to verse 37 to see what Jesus thinks about the curtain being drawn. Does Jesus thumb his nose at the Jewish people and says, well, it's about time, you guys, you really deserve this. No, in verses 37 following, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the same words that he said when God rescued um, Isaac. Um, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the child. Now comes Jerusalem, Jerusalem. She who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I would have wished to huddle together your children in the way that a mother bird gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Look. Your house is left desolate. The Shekinah is about to exit the temple. The Shekinah who is the temple is about to die on the cross and expire. The paradigm shift has come. 
I tell you, you will not see me until such time as you say. And this is the Jewish people. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So as the curtain comes down, you can see a weeping Jesus between the floor and the little bit of shade that's being pulled down. And Jesus is there weeping, saying, I wish it were different. I wish I could have done differently. I wish you would have come under my wing. But you didn't. Time's up. See you later. In the northern coastlands, there is a bird. And I'm told that the way to pronounce the bird's name, and I beg your indulgence if you are a bird fan, a guillemot. And the guillemot uh, flies in thousands. And at, uh, at um, laying egg time, they like to lay their eggs by the thousands on little rocky ledges on the cliffs. And these little pear-shaped eggs are laid in the thousands along the cliff edge by these birds. And scientists have found that the guillemot knows which eggs are its. And if you actually take one of these eggs, which all look identical on the rock shelf, and you move it from one position to another, that bird, even though they're all the same, he'll come and he'll fly back and he'll look and he'll go, wait a minute, that is mine. And he will take it and he will put it back in his order. As I thought about that story, I thought about the tender care of God, who knows each one of us, who knows the number of hairs that we have on our head. He knows our personalities. He knows our desires. We are individual to him. And he cares about us all. And Jesus is saying to Jerusalem and indirectly to us as his adopted children, how I would have longed to just kind of gather you together and take you under my wings. A very maternal picture on this Mother's Day, my friends. How he would have loved to brood over you and how he would have loved to gather you. But in the case of the people in Matthew's gospel, they refused. And so... The curtain goes down with Jesus weeping in effect, saying, there was nothing more that I could do. Hosea chapter 11 says something uh, the same about the character of God, and I want to read it in uh, a Jewish translation, which is a little bit different. I fell in love with Israel when she was still a child, and I have called him my son ever since Egypt. Thus they were called but they went their own way. They sacrificed to Baals and they offered to carved images. I pampered Ephraim, taking them in my arms, but they have ignored me. They have ignored my healing care. I drew them with human ties, with cords of love, but I seemed to them as one who imposed a yoke on their jaws. Though I was offering them food, no, they returned to the land of Egypt and Assyria is their king. And then come the words of judgment from the regretful, loving parent. Because they refuse to repent, a sword shall descend upon their towns and consume their limbs, and devour them because of their designs. For my people persists in its defection from me. But even then, at the end of chapter 11 of Hosea, after he's pronounced judgment, God comes back and he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, render you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. 
all of my tenderness is stirred. My friends, the last verse in this passage has that same kind of an optimistic ring to it. And it's so surprising that scholars aren't exactly sure what to do with it. It seems like it's all doom and gloom until Jesus says in 39, I will tell you, you will not see me until such time as you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And I think this points to the fact that if you read elsewhere in the New Testament and even in the Gospel of Matthew, God is not finished with the Jewish people. He's finished with the leaders of his time. They have cooked their goose, as it were. But people in the future, through the Gentile mission, through those prophets who are the Christian disciples and early missionaries, they're going to proclaim to the Jews the message that Jesus is Lord. And some of them are going to turn and say, we get it. And when Jesus comes again, there will be some who will say, along with others, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. My friends, what am I saying? We've gone through some difficult concepts. I want to end with something that's really simple. God wants you under the care of his wings. But the curtain is coming down. The writing is on the wall. Will you respond to his invitation to come and to cuddle under his wing? Jesus longs for people to be spared of judgment. And that can happen by simply our turning to him and saying, Lord, I know you love me. I've been obstinate. I want to turn even today and repent of my wrongdoing and become one of your ducklings so that one day I might see you again and it will be good news and I will join with those who say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.